It's interesting, people's things that they do in their spare time. People go to these outdoor places and have fun. I thought you went to those places to buy things, not to have fun and play. I've never heard a board game, holidays, but there we go. What's my thing? I love music. I love listening to an album, uh, the whole album, not just a a song, and uh, appreciating the quality of the recording. It's like you're there, the ambience, the presence of the musicians. Uh, The music just moves me. I get moved by music, whatever kind of music it is, as long as it's good music. And listening to the lyrics as well, it just stimulates my mind, and I just go off into a another world almost, in that particular way. When I was 16, which was a long, long while ago now, uh, a friend of mine introduced me to uh, a rock group that was just emerging at that time called Pink Floyd. Have you ever heard of Pink Floyd? Anybody over 20 here? Anybody over 60? Pink Floyd. They were the new kids on the block in the 60s. Pink Floyd, progressive rock group. And I bought most of their albums. In fact, I can remember to this day, as if it was happening now, buying Dark Side of the Moon, a double, al- uh, a, t- a twin-fold centigrade uh, uh, album, and just smelling it, and then just taking it out and putting it onto the turntable and just listening to that music for the first time. I still get a thrill thinking about it. But every time I see that album, Pink Floyd. The exciting thing for me was this. Around about 2015, 16, somebody decided to remaster all the albums of Pink Floyd. So they didn't sound thin and tinny like they'd been converted to CD. They went back to the original master tapes, remastered them so that you could hear the music like you'd never heard the music before. I thought, this is it, this is heaven on earth. So I went to start to buy all these Pink Floyd albums. And as I started to think about it, I got an iTunes account. And I went on and I thought, shall I buy these and download them from iTunes? Same price as buying them in a shop. Or shall I go and get the CD? Well, actually, I wouldn't go and get the CD. Get the CD from Amazon. Sorry for anybody who works at Smith's or anything like that. I get the, the album and, and just burn it onto my laptop that particular way. Then I was looking at some blogs. And the blogs were saying this, what's the point of downloading music from iTunes when these people have remastered the sound of the album to its original quality recording, and you go to iTunes and the quality of the recording, because it's digitally recorded, noughts and ones, stay with me on this one, I told you it was a bit geekish, and it's only 256 gigabytes. It's compressed music file. So all the quality is lost. And you're paying the same amount for the vinyl or the CD album, but you're downloading from iTunes. So I reached a compromise. This is my life. I reached a compromise. Now, if you've got iPod, uh, iPods and iPhones and just listen to music like that, what I'm saying probably doesn't mean much to you. Well, it's music, isn't it? It's noughts and ones. Music. Well, I've got these very nice, expensive speakers. They're powered speakers with a built-in DAC digital analog converter, which takes the noughts and ones and converts them into analog sound. And I can hear the difference. So I thought, no, what I'll do, I'll buy the CDs as and when, burn them on a special program so I've got all the quality of the sound, the ambience, the cadence of the music, 
the timbre. I feel as though I'm right there back in 1969, 1971, listening to Pink Floyd. Now, I know what you're thinking. Howard, you've got to get out more. <laughs> Aren't you? Well, you know, this last Tuesday, part of the London bus, I did get out more. Jane took me to Regent Street. She went to Liberty. I stayed in Liberty for just a little while to do the nice thing. But then just near Regent Street is the Apple Store. I went to the Apple Store, and I loved the vibe there. And I was sitting there just enjoying the vibe. And for a moment, I was thinking a God thought in that place and thinking, I wonder what Jesus would do if he was here in this place. Didn't stay with me too long because I was coveting the max. And then on a big wall to the side, there was a tutorial going on, big video, some geeks there in their 20s, about 14, 15, 20 of them, and this guy with his microphone on and so on, big video, and they were trying to take the sound, the song of one individual female artist, quite a modern artist, and they were changing it. They were adding bits to it so they could make it faster or slower, add a drum here, a beat there, Brazilian whatever rhythm or whatever it might be. But as I listened to it, I thought somebody, I nearly got up there to this guy, I said, somebody has got to say, no matter what you're doing to this sound, it's an MP3 file. It's compressed to about 190 kilobytes. It's just a wall of wool. There's nothing there. You can make it slower, you can make it faster, you can add this thing, that thing, but it's not what it should be like. You've got to go back to the original. Now, here's the thing. Here's my question to you and to me. What is our experience of Jesus in our lives? Do we experience him as some kind of compressed musical file? Or do we experience the fullness and the depth and the cadence and the beauty of his presence in our lives? And this comes to the story that Luke is recording for us of Zacchaeus, what was happening there. Zacchaeus was a tax man. He was a Jew. Palestine at that time was an occupied country. The Romans were in control. So collecting the taxes for the Romans, as far as all the other Jews were concerned, Zacchaeus was a quisling. He was a traitor. He betrayed them. They didn't trust him. They hated him. The second reason why he was a social outcast to his own people, his own countrymen, was this. He was collecting taxes. Who likes a tax person? Nobody. But the way that the tax system was working in those days, the Romans were just simply contracted out. They didn't collect it. Zacchaeus was, paid, was given the contract to do it. And the way that it worked was this. He would get X amount to pay to the Romans but he would make sure he had Y amount to pay for himself. And that involved extortion, frauding people, and all sorts of things. And he was wealthy because Jericho at that time was at the center point, the crossroads of a great trade area. And he was taking taxes from all over the place. And he was a social outcast, but he was wealthy. And then he heard that Jesus was coming to town. And he thought about this. And already Luke records for us, God's grace was working in his life. Because Luke tells us that uh, Zacchaeus ran on ahead, outside the town, 
and he climbed up the tree. Now, in those days, if you were wealthy, you wanted status, and the last thing you did if you were a person of status was to run and climb trees. Zacchaeus was wanting to see Jesus, and he was willing to humiliate himself enough that he ran and he climbed this tree. And this is where we come to our first verse there. In verse 5 in Luke 19, and it says this. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house. Zacchaeus received a new status from Jesus by saying that to him. Zacchaeus received a new status from Jesus. This social outcast. Let's just imagine the scene for a moment. The custom at that time was this, that in any town in Palestine, when a wealthy or a man of status or a person of learning came to their town, the dignitaries of the town had to, by custom, put on a banquet, a show, music, festival. All the other dignitaries would come. And when this person came into their town, they would welcome him, and he would stay, and he would dine with them, and mingle with all the wealthy people. Jericho, they put this on because they knew Jesus was coming. And when Jesus came into Jericho, they said, Jesus, it's great to have you here. We've got the banquet, we've got the food, we've got the musicians. Jesus turned around and said, no, I don't want to stay. I'm going on to to Jerusalem. And as he moved out from there, he met Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus, he calls down, he says to Zacchaeus, I want to stay in your house. So what was happening here? What was the spiritual exchange that was taking place? This man, a social outcast, this man whom no one wanted to know, although he was wealthy, was now receiving the very status of Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus, the Messiah, was saying to Zacchaeus, the social outcast, this Jesus that had almost turned torn up the invitation to stay in Jericho and have all of that welcome was turning to the outsider and saying to him, Zacchaeus, I want to be with you and lodge with you and stay in your house overnight. And that's exactly what Jesus does in our lives when he comes in. He gives us a new status. He wants to lodge in our lives. He wants to dwell with us day by day. In a verse of Scripture, and I'll just read this to you, if you don't mind. In Ephesians 3, this is where those bits of paper come in. Ephesians 3.17, if you want to join me in your iPhone or wherever it might be, in your downloaded bit. And it says this, Ephesians 3 and verse, I'll give you just a moment to, uh, to look it up, 17. And Paul is praying a prayer here. He's praying for Christians. And he says this very simply. I'm praying that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. What does that mean? I'm praying that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The word dwell just basically means to feel completely at home. The question is, how completely at home is Jesus in our lives that we can enjoy the status that he brings into our lives? 
I come from Stoke-on-Trent, and uh, I come from a working-class background. And the house that I was brought up in, it wasn't quite too up, too down, but it was almost like that. But downstairs, we had this very big front room and a small back living room. And it literally was a living room. We did all our living in there, our eating, our socializing, watching television, and even the dog was in that room, 24-7. The front room, big as it was, had the dining table in, the side table in, the best bone china, but we never lived in that room. We never went into that room, but maybe on a Sunday afternoon, don't ask me why that was, or when special people came. Apart from that, nobody ever went into that room. And sometimes it can be like that within our Christian life. We can go through the motions. We've ticked the box. Jesus has come in. We've ticked the box that sometime in the past we were filled with the Holy Spirit. We've ticked the box that we've, we speak in tongues. We've ticked another box here or that. But somehow, Jesus isn't involved or welcomed in every area, every room, every compartment, every role, every sphere of our lives. Not just the Howard at church but the Howard at work or when he was at work or the Howard with his family, the different roles that we have, Jesus wants to completely dwell with us in every area of life. And when he does that and when we allow him and invite him in like that, then what he, Paul says another, elsewhere in Ephesians is that we, we experience everything like Jesus experiences it. Just like Zacchaeus, when Jesus invited himself into his home, he was experiencing something of Jesus at that point. So we experience everything that Jesus is to us. In Ephesians, it says, we are seated with Jesus in heavenly places. It's not something that we work toward. It's not a mindset. It's our spiritual experience. We have this status in Jesus, just like Zacchaeus had. And that means this in practice, that we don't do things out of a sense of guilt. We don't take the old Howard and somehow try and out of that motive, so I've got to be different now, but rather in my new status and Jesus in my life, he lives his life through me. The second thing I want to say is this. And I just want to read verse 8, if you've got your Bible open there, in Luke 19. And something that happens here in this exchange. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times that amount." Zacchaeus didn't have to do that. In the law of restitution at that time, if he wanted to make amends because he'd swindled someone, there were rules laid down in the Old Testament how to do that. Zacchaeus goes way over and above and beyond that. Why? Let's have a look at one scripture in Romans 12. Let's see what's happening in his life. Romans 12 verses 1 to 2. Well-known verse of scripture. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, 
but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. My second thing that I'm saying here from Zacchaeus in this story is this, that Zacchaeus responded with a costly action. Zacchaeus is actually modeling to us Romans 12 verses 1 and 2. He's experienced the love of Jesus. He's experienced the grace of God. It had cost Jesus to take this social outcast in the eyes of all the citizens of Jericho and say, I don't want to dine with you, but I'm going to dine with this social outcast. It had cost Jesus. Zacchaeus was experiencing grace and love of God in his life. And as a consequence, his whole life was changing. And this is what Paul is talking about in Romans 12. If you ever get time, read the whole of Romans in one go in a modern translation, because it was meant to be experienced like that. And what Paul is doing this in Romans 12, it's almost at the end of what he's been saying. He starts in chapter 1 and goes through it, and he says, look, we were like this. God was like that, righteous. He tried to do something through a people called Israel. Then he came through Jesus. Then he changed us with his grace. Through his spirit, you can do this, this, and this. Isn't God amazing? He goes through it like that, and then he comes personally, practically, application, Romans 12. Therefore, in the light of everything that God has done, give your life as a sacrifice to God. And in doing so, your mind will be transfigured, because that's what the word means. It's the same word that the gospel writers used in the Gospels when they talked about Jesus being up at the mountain of transfiguration and that a few of the disciples were there and just for a brief moment the human veil of his flesh was just drawn aside and the disciples saw his divinity shining out, his godlike qualities. That's what was happening. And this is the same experience that Paul is talking about, using the same word. When we become Christians, what was happening to Zacchaeus was this. He was experiencing the transformation of God in his life. He wasn't just ticking a box. He wasn't looking back just simply at the book of Leviticus and saying, oh, that's what I should do now to be a good Jew. He was experiencing something transformational in his life and he moved out and began to express it in that particular way. And we too can do that and experience that in our lives today. There's a translation of the Bible. It was actually by an Anglican minister, J.B. Phillips, very popular in the 1960s, a translation. And what he says is this. When this happens, when the Spirit comes, and this is still Romans 12, let your mind be transformed so that the world doesn't press you into its mold. Isn't that wonderful? So the world doesn't press you into its mold. So you're no longer living and moving and checking and using as your point of reference what the world thinks, what Britain thinks, what London thinks, what your friends think, what your work colleagues think. But you're actually coming from something within here. Jesus. And everything is motivating you from him here because you've been transformed. God in you. When Jesus said you will be born again, he said being born from heaven. Heaven, Jesus comes within us. This isn't religion. This isn't liturgical. This isn't being righteous on a Sunday. This is living heaven on earth through Jesus in our lives. But so often as Christians, 
We treat it like our experience, it's like a Sky package. I've got the sports bit, I'll have the bolt on for family package for the films for the kids. Or Spotify, I've got the basic package, I'll upgrade to the one that's, dare I say, got slightly better sound quality. It's not like that. Christianity is more than that. And this is what happened to Zacchaeus. He's modeling it for us there in the book of Luke. He's being transformed. Now, I don't know. We know that Levi, as a tax collector, left everything because he was called by Jesus and started to follow Jesus. Is it possible to have a good tax collector? I don't know. But you Google it and see if Zacchaeus carried on being a tax collector. If he did, he became, dare I say it before the book of Acts, a Christian tax collector. He was transformed. He shattered the stereotypes. The caricature was just gone. And that's what Jesus can do within us. This is Christianity, a life experience. But it requires, like Zacchaeus, a costly action. Like Paul says in Romans 12, present your bodies as living sacrifices. And then, if we just come back to Luke again, and verse 9 of Luke, and see what's saying there, this particular point, and coming to a conclusion. And I've gone and lost my little bit of paper now. So now I'm having to do it old school and try and find chapter 19 again, which is harder than you think. I've forgotten how hard that is. Tempted to use my phone, but I'll just leave that to one side. What happens here? Verse 9, you with me? Luke 19. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man, this social outcast, is too a son of Abraham. What does that mean? A son of Abraham. It doesn't mean that this is some kind of messianic Christianity. Something Jewish with a bit of Christian sort of bolted onto it. A bit of Christian with a bit of Jewishness bolted onto it. Son of Abraham. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean like some uh, preachers would have you believe that we can become prosperous like Abraham was prosperous. Well, we're all children of Abraham. And he was wealthy. Boy, was he wealthy indeed. Therefore, if I'm going to be a Christian... I can be wealthy too. And I'm not knocking wealth, don't misunderstand me. But that can be overemphasized. But it doesn't mean that. In the idiom of the day, at that time, when Luke was writing this, it means simply this. To say someone is a son of something, the son of Abraham, it means they share the family likeness, the family characteristics. So again, what does it mean to share the family characteristics of Abraham? Can you turn with me to Romans 4 and verse 12? And it says this. It's right in the middle of a big conversation that Paul is having. And he is then also the father of circumcised, that's the Jews, who not only are circumcised, but are also followers in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. The faith that our father Abraham had. That's what I want to emphasize there. Now, if you go down to verse 16, chapter 4 still. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, 
so that it might be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. He is the father of us all. So to be a son of Abraham is to be a person of faith. But what did that mean in Abraham's life? Let me just give you a brief cameo of Abraham's life. How does it mean to follow in the footsteps of Abraham, to be faith-like? Because this is the action bit. We've talked about understanding where we're at. We've talked about uh, what it means to, to sacrifice our lives. What does this mean in practice? It means to act in faith day by day in our lives. It's a mind thing. So what was it for Abraham in his life? I'm going to go through these quite quickly. It's a bit of a cameo of Abraham and how he believed God in his life. Hebrews 11, it said this. Abraham went out from Ur of the Chaldees, a great place. Don't think they were just in mud huts. This was the cradle of civilization. They had algorithms, algorithms, logarithms. They studied the stars. They had science. They had civilization. He left that culture behind because God said, I want you to go, Abraham, to a place that you don't know where to go. So to follow in our father's footsteps like Abraham means to go where, on a journey where God is telling us to go and we're unsure where the destination is. That's mind-blowing. And today I'm asking you, and as we're going to have some ministry time in a moment or two, what is God saying to you? Maybe you just need some ministry into this in your life. Has God already started you on that journey? And then on the way in that journey, you're thinking to yourself, where is this going, Lord? I can't see the end of this. Or maybe God's whispering into your life and you just need help and just moving forward in that. He's telling you there's a journey there. Like Abraham, we have the faith and we go on that journey. That's what it means to be a son of Abraham in the New Testament sense. And I love this one. In James, it says this about Abraham. Very simply, he was the friend of God. Isn't that beautiful? Abraham was the friend of God. And elsewhere in the scriptures it says this, that God shared his secrets with Abraham. Isn't that beautiful? This is what it should be like as a Christian. If you want to know what it means to be a Christian, go back to the book of Genesis in the Garden of Eden. What does it say in the Garden of Eden? In the cool of the evening, when Adam and Eve were walking in the garden, God would come down and walk with them and share his heart with them. That's what it means to be back in the Garden of Eden. God, isn't this an amazing thing? Our Heavenly Father wants to walk with you, wants to share his heart with you, his hopes, his dreams, his plans, not just for you, but what he wants to do in this place, what he wants to do with this city, what he wants to do with this country and this world. He wants to share his heart with you. That's why he created Adam and Eve. Abraham, to be a friend of God, a son of faith. And I like this one. In Romans 4, it says this. Abraham, because of his faith, staggered not at the promises of God. Isn't this beautiful? The context is this. Abraham is 100 or plus. His wife is in his 90s. And God has said this to them. Abraham... You are going to have a son. And God looks, and Abraham looks at himself, I'm too old. I can't procreate. He looks at his wife, has to be careful on this one. You can see the wrinkles. 
but he can see the inner beauty. But he thinks to himself, I don't know whether he actually says it to Sarah, Sarah, you're too old to have a child. But the dialogue, the dynamic that's going on is not in parentheses like we tend to put in it. Oh, he went to church, sang a few songs, got high, got into some spiritual zone and believed God and it happened one day. No. Day after day, in his faith, he looked at, it says there, considered not. He looked at his wife getting older. He looked at his own body and felt his own body getting older and older. And still the promise was there. And this whole sense of it is, despite his doubts, despite what his eyes were telling him and his mind was telling him, he believed God. He staggered not at what God was saying. God had promised he would have a child and a child he would have. And the child was born. That's what it means in the New Testament sense when Jesus called Zacchaeus down and said, today you're a son of Abraham. And he says the same thing to us today. We are the children of Abraham. If we walk in that kind of faith, we look at our circumstances, we look at our condition, we look at them, and we don't try and pray them away in some silly imaginative sense. We look at them and say, yeah, that's right. But God, but God. And the final thing is this, what it means to be like Abraham. He made the supreme climb. He made the supreme climb. What does this mean in his faith? Years had gone by, his boy Isaac had grown, young child, and then God said to him, listen to this, I can't get, I, I don't understand this. As a Christian, I've been a Christian for a long while, and I still find this hard to wrestle with. God said to Abraham, your son, Isaac, take your son, your only son, and sacrifice him on the Mount Moriah. He did, and he went. But we know the story, he got to the point where he didn't have to sacrifice his son. The journey of su supreme sacrifice. How does that apply to us? Well, I don't know, but I've read different people over the years, and one of the, the people that makes sense to me is a guy named Watchman Nee. Watchman, he said this in interpreting this. He says, sometimes as Christians, we get so involved, God gives us things, gifts, ministries, whatever it might be, who we are, that they become more important than God. And somehow, he says, and probably quite normally, it's, it's a father thing to do, Isaac, the promise, which was meant to represent something that God was doing spiritually, had become more important filling Abraham's life more than God was. And God said, that's not good enough. I need to be the center of your life. So he took him to that point where he was willing to let go so that God would be center of his life. All of these things then is what it means to be a son of Abraham. Zacchaeus was restored to the family of Abraham. Zacchaeus responded to the cost of the love of God in his life. Zacchaeus received a whole new status and he lived from that status. And today, the call is this, the ongoing call. Do we want a compressed MP3 version experience of Jesus? Or do we want the full ambience the organic sense of his presence as he walks and moves 
in our lives, in our families, in our homes, in this church, day by day. He's waiting. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your love to us. Thank you, Jesus, that this is not just a story in the Gospels. You were there. You did it. You acted it out. You lived it out. Father, we pray that in our lives now, we will begin to experience all the fullness, all the depth, the breadth and the height of the beauty of your love and presence in our lives day by day. Amen.